Hi guys, Steve here. Welcome back to the podcast and uh, thank you for tuning into this episode. I have no idea what Pascal's going to have called this episode, but thank you for tuning in and listening to me. And I've just got some news for you. So I'm just going to take a couple of minutes to let you know what's going on at Revive Stronger. Uh, basically, soon you won't be able to access the improvement season episodes on this podcast channel. Don't worry, if you love it and you want to keep listening, you can. We're just moving it to its own platform to keep things streamlined and to avoid any unnecessary confusion. We have over 200 episodes of that podcast. Absolutely crazy, I know. And we have over 300 interviews and we can imagine it gets jumbled. And that's some of the feedback that we've had. And especially if you're new to the podcast, I could see that being confusing. So we've made the decision to move them apart. And so for those of you who love our interviews with the experts in the field, please stick around because that's what we've got on this channel for you. And we have some very exciting ones in the works. And if you haven't listened to the improvement season before, let me quickly give you the lowdown because you could be missing out. It's me and Pascal, my right-hand man at Revive Stronger, catching up about our week, training, nutrition, life, and more. It's super informal, and we always go off on tangents about could be anime, could be the news, lots of different things come into these episodes, but we always try and bring it back to something valuable that's relevant to you guys and something you can take home from the episode. We also on occasion gather listener questions and do Q&A based episodes, so if you have questions, we could be answering them over on there. We're both competitive natural bodybuilders and we're just trying to get as jacked as possible whilst living our lives. And so we'd love you to join us on that journey. If you want something that's an easy listen and to listen in the background whilst you're doing other things, this is perfect. You don't have to take notes. You don't have to concentrate too hard. There's probably gonna be some jokes involved, so enjoy. You'll be able to find it under the title, The Improvement Season Podcast. So if you want to tune into those episodes, please be sure to subscribe and we look forward to having you there. So guys, that's all I wanted to let you know. We're just going to be separating these two podcasts to make things easier for everyone. And uh, that's it. So thank you for listening to me. And as always, Revive Stronger. Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Eric Helms back on the show. Yes, he's back on it. It hasn't been a year or multiple years. Uh, It's actually only been a few months, which is great because it's always fun talking to Eric. We talk a lot about his current experiment regarding stretching his calves and whether or not that's going to produce some tasty hypertrophy and uh, take Eric out of team no calves. We're going to learn a lot there and uh, whether or not this can be applied to other muscle groups and things like this, which I think is very interesting. And then just further digging into his current training, how he's implementing kind of the data that's coming out about long muscle lengths and the stretch mediated hypertrophy that seems to be hypothesized. And there seems to be pretty strong evidence suggesting that is a thing. And then we dig into what optimal means for Eric 
and how he kind of talks with his clients about that subject because it's become a little bit of a buzzword over the past kind of months and years and so it's really refreshing to hear Eric's take on that so I think there's a lot to take home from this episode and if you did enjoy this episode please remember guys subscribe to the YouTube or to the podcast provider that you're on and if you can give us a rating please do hopefully a positive one and uh, as always share it with anyone that you think might find it valuable and give us a screenshot and uh, a tag over on Instagram if you are uh, tuning in we always appreciate seeing that too so guys without further ado let's get into the chat Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Eric Helms back on the show. I said last time I would not leave it as long as the time it had been before. Uh, Sometimes just time flies and I have no idea how it happens, but it's only been months, Eric, since we last spoke like this, which I appreciate that we've been able to get on again and maybe you don't appreciate it, but... I'm happy. Well, that's what matters. I kind of feel like it was last year we talked last time, so <laughs> I don't know, Steve. <laughs> no, it's Thankfully, it's January. On. I always appreciate it. Yes, it is January. That's my my uh, patented dad joke for the start of the podcast. I'm sure I'll have more with the rest, but no, it's great to be back on. I really appreciate it. Awesome. And I know the listeners are just as happy as I am. And the thing I wanted to start with, Eric, is I think probably people have heard it on maybe various podcasts or where you've dropped a a line here or there talking about your calf experiment. And I think probably I I don't want to put myself in this category, but I think I probably am a little bit part of team no calves. And I imagine some of the listeners are and some people have just given up. I'm still plugging away trying to grow the fuckers so uh you however are using some of the recent literature that's come out surrounding kind of um, stretch mediated hypertrophy application towards the calves and you're essentially making yourself like a well actually you're doing a study yourself aren't you so i thought it'd be interesting to hear how that's going and to kind of update the listeners on that absolutely yeah so um i for for those i, I i'm sure not everyone listens to every single episode of your podcast shame on them um, that's what people want. When you get someone to listen to one episode, they want to be shamed for doing so. So <laughs> you're, you're welcome, Steve. Um, no, but so the last time I was on, we talked a bit about what I'm doing, but I think it's probably worth briefly recapping it. Um, sure. just so people know, and we're on the same page. Okay, cool. So there was a study that came out, <clears throat> um, I want to say a year ago now, although Warnicke and colleagues, that's the lab in Germany that's primarily working on this, have released subsequent follow-up studies. They're doing more work in this area. Um, that basically had untrained participants uh, for six weeks stretching one of their or one of their calves, but not both, with an orthotic custom-made device for an hour per day. And at the end of it, uh, they observed a 15% increase in muscle thickness. Uh, and also kind of cool, there was some increases in isometric strength, uh, increases in range of motion, and there were actually some crossover effects into the non-stretched legs uh, leg. So that was a significant difference, pretty cool. And um, it brings the kind of the the research full circle on quote unquote stretch mediated hypertrophy, as you said, because we had animal data at the start, we have speculative anecdotal research, um, but we haven't had much data specifically on uh, really showing a direct link between stretching and hypertrophy. And one of the reasons why we thought we hadn't is that the dosage used in some of the animal studies and the intensities are pretty high. Like the classic study where they're 24-7 weighting a bird's wing with weights and watching it hypertrophy. Um, 
poor birds. Uh, unless they were bodybuilder birds who wanted jack wings, <laughs> then good job, birds. Um, that's the second dad joke. So uh, there'll be more. And so this is the first study where they really used a comparable stretching protocol. So in, in for each one of these stretching sessions, the participants, if you read the methods, they had to get into a pretty uncomfortable, I think it was 8 out of 10, uh, if I recall correctly, um, stretch pain position or like max what they could tolerate uh, at the start of it and then just live there for an hour on the leg that was stretched. And so we're basically replicating that. I say basically because we don't have the custom-made orthotic device, but I did scour um, the scientific database called Amazon.com. I don't know if you've heard of that. And I did find a made in China uh, basically, they're, they're these same, similar looking devices to the orthotic that they have, but they're actually designed for plantar fasciitis. They're designed to stretch, uh, your, like the bottom of your foot, you know, and, uh, your, your plantar fascia. And an interesting thing that people might not know is that the way that you actually get a lot of dorsiflexion, um, is not like biomechanically is by actually flattening your foot. So, that's why they kind of go hand in hand. It's not the only way, of course, like stretching the calf and the Achilles tendon adds to that as well. But anyway, a very popular, uh, you know, orthotic device uh, that you can find online is for that that purpose. They'll be marketed that way. And I basically looked for the one on Amazon that looked the most like the orthotic device that Warnicke had. I got it. And it is definitely not the same quality. So let's just put that out up front. Um However, I have been able to achieve a similar stretch. And for those who are watching on video, this is where your heel goes. This is the foot pad, and this is on, on basically on my calf. Um, and the two straps on each side, you use Velcro. So as with Velcro always, there is only a certain amount of overlap, okay? So I am on my second to last week of this study. So I'm 11 weeks of stretching an hour uh, six days per week, I actually gave myself an off day because I'm also doing resistance training. I am not just doing one leg. I'm doing both legs. And I'll explain the statistical design, uh, the study design we're using for how we can actually see if it made an impact directly and attribute causation. But anyway, so the Velcro that we pull on each side is to pull me into dorsiflexion, pull my the top of my foot closer to my ankle. I ran out of, as I got more and more flexible, and I'm still going to an 8 out of 10, uh, room and for actual like itself. So it's now it's now the Velcro is on itself, but like the non-sticky part. So the first way I started to solve that is I got these uh, paper clips, um, these guys, which I attached on there, and then that that wasn't strong enough. So now what I have is I have a series of six tacks that I have <laughs> pushed through. This is this is highly funded, uh, like <laughs> NIH grant uh, research that we're doing here. So I have six tacks that I push through on each side, as well as uh, putting the the paper clip on there to hold them close together so the tacks can hold it in place. Um, and I'm sure there's some smarter people or more pragmatically engineering-minded people who are going, oh, there's so many more easy ways to do that. It's too late. I've already made this This <laughs> the way I'm doing it. We're 11 weeks in. By the time you contact me, I'll be done. Um, and I'm doing this, like I said, six hours a day. Um, six hours per week per leg. So 12 hours per week of time spent stretching. It's a good thing I have a sedentary job. I do a lot of writing. I'm on podcasts. I should be wearing it right now, but I'm showing you, dear listener, that's the sacrifice <laughs> I'm making. Um, and yeah, so each time I have to get a little more because I'm getting more and more flexible. I have had the midweek test and we're going to do two post tests. So the study design, to take a step back, 
is uh, a single subject case study. So it's me, um, and I am one of the authors. Um, the We don't really have a hypothesis, and we're not sure if it's going to work. The reason why we're not sure if it's going to work is, quote-unquote, stretch-mediated hypertrophy. Is that actually different from resistance training? Um, people are probably aware that there's now research showing that resistance training in and of itself improves range of motion. And it really makes sense if you think about it, if you're using a full range of motion uh, and you're you know, loading your body, that is a weighted stretch in every time you get near your end range of motion. And that does seem to improve range of motion in most people. Um, so, you know, this kind of passive, the only, only real difference is that I'm not doing any active contraction while I'm doing this, this stretch. So there may be some difference. I'm not sure. Uh, and we're, I haven't seen any convincing mechanistic arguments as to what exactly is going on. Um, but I think it is probably mechanical tension sensing that could be uh, maybe additive to what is going on when you're doing an active contraction. Um, you know, we have not only the Titan molecule that kind of connects the ends of sarcomeres to the, the cytoskeleton, uh, but we also have costomeres, which go between myofibrils. And there's uh, also just the, the tendon itself, which has a whole bunch of uh, sensing uh, organs. So it could be that this stretch is being translated across various tissues in a different way or a complementary way, possibly to resistance training. So maybe uh, this could be beneficial to someone who's already lifting weights, but not sure. So the way that we're telling if this is doing something in me, because I came into the study as a trained person, still training, uh, was that for the first four weeks of the study, uh, I did not do, use the orthotic device at all. Uh, what we did is we just took a weekly measurement of, of my calf. Uh, we did ultrasound. We did, um, at the end of the four weeks, we did a circumference measurement, uh, looking at multiple regions and sites of the calf, looking at ultrasound muscle thickness. Uh, and at the end, along with that circumference measurement, we took a range of motion test and we did an isometric mid-thigh pull, like calf raise, uh, modified, um, with the strain gauge. So we did a strength test, a circumference test, a bunch of muscle thickness to get the idea of my, what my regular change is over four weeks. So, and also my regular variation, just my day-to-day -day or my week-to-week, -week, I should say, biological variability in my muscle thickness. That way, even though I'm stretching both calves, so we don't have a quote-unquote control leg, we can see whether the variation that we saw in the four weeks, if I supersede that, if I get more than that, that is a quote-unquote real change. Um, a limitation of this data is you could say, well, maybe it would have just took six weeks to get that, you know, real change of your regular calf training and it's not the stretching at all. And we're just going to have to accept, accept that limitation. I think the magnitude of the change or perhaps the lack thereof is going to indicate whether or not this, uh, worked quote unquote. Yep. Um, and then at the 12 week mark, we'll have the post test. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop down from the high volume calf training I'm doing of 20 sets per week. Uh, and uh, go down to 12. So a more kind of quote unquote normal calf volume that, that might be used um, for the week, uh, which is also a lot more close to my baseline before I decided, damn it, I'm going to make these things grow. Um, and I'm going to stop stretching. So we're going to see if just simply doing 12 sets of calf training, full range of motion and, you know, slight pause at the bottom, just the typical way I kind of train them is sufficient to maintain whatever I got from the 12 weeks. Or if I backslide, or if maybe there's some type of, you know, super compensatory effect, because I've just been really pushing the limit on what I can recover from, um, which I do or do not know if that's true. I'm actually not sure. So there's a number of different outcomes that could happen. And worst case scenario, it doesn't work. But I know that I, uh, you know, don't have to try anymore or care anymore about calves. <laughs> and I can just have calf nihilism as, as, a, as a philosophy and focus on other things. <laughs> 
That was very well explained and very interesting. I'm I'm thinking Omar has got like a perfect avenue here to kind of produce one of these and sell it because he's got his like team no calves and he can use you as just a sale model for this. There's companies like there's so many little companies that are producing these like BFR bands are like a huge thing where you can buy them all over the shop. Mm-hmm. There's got to be someone assuming this works, you know, someone's going to take this and, and build this because I'd purchase it. Man, I tell you what, that would be the biggest sellout move for Omar ever to uh, to <laughs> sell, sell a calf hypertrophy device to Team No Calves. I mean, that's just uh, but science is evidence based. <laughs> it is evidence based. Science. I mean, you you could leverage it. I'm telling you, you could do it. But um, Team No Calves isn't a like ah uh, oh, darn we have no calves but we try real hard. It's it's like a moral philosophy against training calves. So sure. <laughs> I think he would probably get some death threats. But um, but hey, it's all worth it for that dollar dollar bill. So. <laughs> and interesting enough i think you spoke about this uh somewhere i heard your nutrition you're controlling that so i think you're not changing that in any way shape or form over this time either are you correct so i'm kind of still in my gain taining phase if you will right at the end i'm actually delaying the start of my contest prep by a week or two um so i blame myself and uh if if, if i'm not in shape i'm blaming my calves so it's going to be multiple reasons to blame my calves at my first show. So yeah, it'll be good. Shreds or bigger calves, the judges. <laughs> I don't know which one's more important. <laughs> He's six weeks out in terms of his conditioning, but he has slightly bigger calves than, than him last time, but still small calves. I'm giving him the win. That's what I expect. Yeah. Uh, and I love that you're also measuring them after the fact, because I guess with this study that Warnocky did, they didn't measure them after the fact. So who knows if I'm assuming that all the individuals didn't continue doing this or do it to the other leg or something to even things out. They just kind of were like, thank God that's over, maybe. Uh, assuming they are part of Team No Calves or just not uh, regular gym trainees, which they weren't. So it's going to be interesting to see if like it's maintained via not needing to stretch it anymore, which hopefully it is because I imagine... There's only so much, like you couldn't just keep that. I don't imagine it's going to be like a protocol you keep along your training forever. Maybe it would be, I'm not sure. Like how far can you take it? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting because we're still learning about this stuff. Like um, Greg in the upcoming issue of Mass reviewed a study which basically found um, stretching during a detraining period helps to better maintain strength, um, which is kind of interesting. You know, and uh, Greg anecdotally has noticed that, you know, he just enjoys stretching his lower body. It's something he does basically daily just out of a sense of enjoyment. And he notices that when he gets back to training from a layoff, he typically has more ground to make up on his bench than, say, his squat or his deadlift. So um, that is maybe an indicative and additive effect, maintaining attention stimulus. You know, um, there is some application in rehabilitation settings, like if you need to immobilize a limb, immobilize it with the muscle in a more lengthened position. Um, you know, and I think what, what, what would happen is the muscle tendon unit would get to a new quote unquote resting length, but it might maintain whatever level of morphological change it needed to get there, right? Um, at least that's my hypothesis. I would think that if you did a stretching regimen, gained some hypertrophy, and then you didn't quote unquote access that range of motion to a sufficient dose, frequency, and magnitude, you could just lose those gains. Um, so some of the things I'm not worried about with the way I train with calves is that 
you know, my, my depth on squats, you know, is changing because of my range of motion, my depth on leg press, I am doing calf raises and I, and I bought them out, you know, so I'm, I'm fingers crossed, hopeful that that would be sufficient. Uh, you know, like three, three days a week, you know, just accumulating those, those, those reps and with, you know, under load, of course, to, to maintain the calf gains from stretching, but we shall see. I also don't know how much like, um, edema I'm walking around with, with training calves every day and stretching them, you know, six days a week. It doesn't seem like a lot, like visually, I don't see any, they're not constantly sore. Like when I, when I get to a point where I'm like, I don't know if that's an eight out of 10, let me go a little tighter. Um, I do notice that in the subsequent couple days, two or three days, the, my Achilles tendon just feels a little sore, uh, kind of like right, right near my calcaneus, my heel. Um, and then that goes away. And then that kind of process repeats itself a couple weeks later, once I feel like I've gained more range of motion and the, uh, perceived pain at the start, uh, is lower. So it's an interesting process of kind of like progressively overloading it and noticing how it changes and things like that. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I really don't know. And I, I think one thing that I don't want people to do because we have a tendency in the evidence-based community for the prominent science communicators who are also scientists, when they publish data, we kind of elevate it to, even if we don't necessarily elevate the, the findings, it's elevated in our awareness, you know, like when, uh, Dr. Schoenfeld produces a study on hypertrophy, People will talk a lot about that study, but they won't necessarily be aware of the three other studies that are in a similar vein that did or did not find, you know, similar outcomes. And sometimes we can um, overstate the consistency of the data based upon something that got a lot of, you know, press. So whether or not this leans in favor of trained individuals uh, doing the the stretching or not. I think we need to be really aware of the limitation. This is this is Eric Helms's calves, so <laughs> the degree to which it will um, necessarily represent other people is we should expect it to to not right. Um, but I think for someone who is like right, I have relatively high calves. I have a large training age. I've tried a lot of different things, high volume. I've tried high intensity. I've tried BFR. Um, I've tried multiple different exercises. I've tried high frequency, uh, but I haven't tried stretching them. And I and and this case study showed someone like that, a la me, did it, and they actually saw some growth. Maybe that might apply to me. I think that's a a, a reasonable hypothesis. So it could be something useful. And I think at the very least, it's a proof of principle study of what does a well trained muscle respond to from this you know, stretch mediated angle. And if there is additional hypertrophy that can be gained in a relatively short time period, 12 weeks in a well-trained individual who otherwise, you know, you might not be able to measure hypertrophy changes in a short period of time, then okay, there might be something here. Um, but I think that's about the extent of what we can conclude. So I think that that's, that's, that's probably a useful message as we talk about this, even as cool as it is. No, I think that that's really well said and kind of just making sure people are aware, like it's not a big sample size is it? if it's just yourself, but if this is probably going to encourage, I mean, if it's positive results, I'll certainly kind of look to invest and experiment myself because I mean, I'm just sitting watching TV for an hour in the evening. I can just strap on a kind of uh, the, the orthotic device or what have you. Hopefully someone will produce one at some point. I'm very eager for that. But I mean, who's going to do that when it based off uh, very little data? I'm not sure. And how, I don't know. I, I think there's maybe I'm a bit too far into our niche, but I think quite a lot of people are going to be interested if they can get like, especially if it's 
I don't know, anywhere close to 5% plus. Like if you're seeing significant changes there, that'd be awesome. Out of interest, Eric, I don't know if, um, I don't remember seeing it in the paper. The, the 15% that was seen by Warnocky, was that an average or was that kind of, uh, did something, were there people like at the higher or lower end? Do you, was that data available? That was the mean change for the group uh, relative to their unstretched leg. Um, and I would have to pull up the the study to look at the standard deviation to see how big okay. that standard deviation was, which would tell us about the spread of it. Um, and if you can find a reason to ramble, I can I can do that for a second uh, and pull it up. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I could actually on my phone. No, it's, don't, I, don't stress about it. I think it's. Um, I was just interested to see if there was any kind of big differences there. And the other question I had on this, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on it. Do you think if this does provide to be positive for you, do you think there's other applications of it? To other muscle groups i don't know off the top of my head i can't think where that might be but uh i spoke to dr scott stevenson about this i was like eventually we're gonna have like torture devices at home where we just like strap ourselves in for an hour a day <laughs> that's our weight that's our hypertrophy training going <laughs> i would be really interested in trying some of that stuff like i mean <laughs> i'm sure there would be all of a sudden like these like semi-defunct companies that sell like posture related devices and you know they get some royalty check like every three months for six dollars one day they're going to look and be like why did we just get six hundred dollars you know like (laughs) (laughs) this thing that's supposed to like you know uh, you know change your kyphosis is being bought by a bunch of people who want bigger pecs now like what's happening you know so um honestly i i don't think it's it's not an unreasonable proposition right um finding a way to i mean I'm not enough of an anatomy guru to think which muscle groups can and can't be stretched to a really good degree. Like, where do you start to get some pretty significant joint limitations? Like, I think the biceps probably won't work very well. Um, There are probably some other muscle groups I can't think of. Um, I, I would be interested to see if my hamstrings are actually getting some response out of this because of the position I'm in when I stretch. It's basically a sit and reach position every time. Like I keep my back straight and my leg out at a uh like a you know perpendicular to my torso because that's the position they use in warnicky and that is become a, a increasingly less uncomfortable position over time like i'm getting less tingling in my my foot and my calf uh and the hour-long thing is after 10 weeks or so started to become less painful um, because of like my foot falling asleep so it makes me wonder if like i've actually modified like my my sciatic nerve like if it's been stretched in some way so that it's not like getting pinched and making my leg go to sleep to the same degree i i honestly just don't don't know um yeah nor do i understand the uh the specifics of it we need to talk to probably a physio or something like that but um but it is interesting and i think there's no reason this couldn't apply to like other other muscle groups like why not you know and i think uh like for the hamstrings, I imagine if it did apply to the hamstrings, the dose you would need would be significantly less versus the calves because the calves are just notorious for being so stubborn and awful to train. Whereas the hamstrings are actually, they are pretty reactive to weight training normally and the volume requirements are normally much less. So I imagine the stretching would be less as well. So I hope so. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would hope so. Uh, and it was interesting. I think you mentioned um, just the final probably point on this with uh, the device you didn't notice because I was thinking like off the top of my head I was thinking man six hours stretching your calf to a kind of eight out of ten I imagined that would disrupt some of my leg training or something like that but it sounded like it wasn't too bad on your end it really hasn't yeah I haven't noticed any any negative impact on my leg training at all um 
early on, I was like, I'm only going to do this at night. I don't want it to, to stretch like before I do my calf training. Um, but I have started to do it just because it's much more convenient. And it, like if you forget at night, you're like, oh, shit, it's 9 p.m. Like, okay, I guess we'll stand up till 11, right? I have done that. And I'm like, no, this isn't worth it. Like the juice isn't worth the squeeze, right? So um, what I have instead do, done is typically in the morning when, I'm, when I know I've got a couple hours of writing to do, I'll strap in um, and just focus on that. Um, and that has been pretty useful. And then I typically train in the afternoon. So it's still like if you think about like the, the data on pre-training stretching and inhibiting, you know, force production and potentially even hypertrophy – uh, that can be corrected with a dynamic warmup, you know? And, yeah. um, I, I really don't think like doing it two hours beforehand is going to have a negative impact. And I haven't noticed, I, I was worried about safety to be honest with you initially, but I, I just, I don't know. I feel like I'm actually pretty strong in the stretch position now, which is probably indicative to some of the like, uh, length tension relationship changes from increasing range of motion. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's some. There are some interesting potential outcomes from a performance perspective as well that you might be able to get from this if you were thinking about, um, for whatever reason, I want to be able to produce more force in a stretch position for a joint. That would probably be a very specific yeah. strength and conditioning intervention for a specific sport or athlete or position that uh, you know you have to apply that principle in, in the context. But um, yeah, the strength data is interesting as well. It was Jeff Torres coughed, didn't he? Jeff did tear his calf doing something ridiculous like 495-pound calf raises. <laughs> Let me tell you what, dude. So when I was recently at Worlds, um, coaching there with, with, with Jeff and, and Brian, um, we got some training sessions in together. And you know how some people are, are like strong? Uh, I don't know if you've met them. I have. <laughs> um, so – Jeff, you you he's like that for most of my lifts. Like, okay, like if we train together, I can expect Jeff's maybe 10, 20% stronger than me, right? Um, for calves, it's like 90% stronger than me. <laughs> it's it doesn't make any sense. Like we 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 you know, we, we did like some one of those like seated uh calf raise like machines where your your feet are kind of at like a 45 degree downward angle from you. And um, you know, I've got it on like 280 pounds or something like that. And Brian gets up and he does something around there, maybe less, maybe slightly more. And then Jeff puts it on like 400. And I'm just like, what? You know, it, this makes no sense, you know? So, um, yeah, that it's uh, when, when, like, when he says, yeah, so I had to cap what I do on Smith Machine calf raises just for safety. I only do like 405. And now I'm like, all right, bro. Like, that's, that's a lot of weight. <laughs> I feel so. like I'd be similar to you, <laughs> Eric. I don't think my calves are up there. Um, but uh, my kind of thought was, do you think there is any risk of that sort of thing through the stretch of the calves? Or do you think kind of, I guess the protocol you've used is is a kind of safe way of go about going about it? I I, I don't, you know, I did, this is like my gut feels vibes response. Because obviously if we wanted to have like a true safety analysis, we would be like, hey, we need a hundred people to do yeah. this. And see if like what the incidence rate of, of uh, pain, side effects, tears, strains, or what have you was. So I, I literally have no idea how safe this is. Um, but I will say that if you look at the data on stretching as a way to prevent injuries, it's not convincing. But it's not convincing the other way. It doesn't show that like stretching protocols increase you know rate of injuries in athletes. 
Um, this is maybe a little more aggressive more frequently. It's like kind of, kind of on the extreme end of stretching. And I will say, and I think I echoed this in our last discussion, that um, I don't have data on this. But this is just from talking to my cousin who is big into yoga. There's plenty of injuries that occur in, in yoga. So oh. hypermobile people who take it pretty seriously, especially if they like are instructors, do it regularly. Um, they sometimes do strain things and like dislocate joints and things like that. And that causes injury and can cause pretty significant things. So uh, that surprised me. Um, I mean, it makes sense once once it, once it's explained. Um, but obviously from our, our, our background as lifters, we, we just don't think of stretching as a, no. an injurious, you know, practice you'd think maybe because i stretched now if i lift it could you know predispose me to injury but stretching itself you know I, I, that, that wouldn't be my perspective so it's a, maybe a little more something to be respectful of the possibility than you would be at baseline if you don't have much experience with this um but yeah i to me it does not feel dangerous um i think probably what i'd recommend people to do unlike what i did is actually ease into it not not going from so go for for, sci, for the scientific purpose of wanting to know what the Warnicky protocol minus one day does compared to nothing. I went from zero to to twelve hours per week of stretching. Right, so um, I wouldn't recommend that. I would probably do something like fifteen minutes every other day to start, like legitimately, and and you know see what you get out of it, and then build up from there. It gives you a much longer runway of progression. So. Um, I think just because you can jump into this, and that's been demonstrated by Warnicky, we don't know that this is necessary. Um, we know this is a sufficient dose. And by the way, I did pull up the study and I got the standard deviation for you. Um, we know this is a sufficient dose to increase muscle thickness. So the pretest value in the leg that was uh, stretched was 14.31 millimeters. I think that's the gastroc thickness with the standard deviation of 2.42. The post-test was 16.5 plus or minus 2.78. So the thing to look at there is how much did the standard deviation on the post-test increase from the pre-test and not that much. Um, yeah, it's it's right. about a 10% increase in variation. So that That's means cool. it was reasonably homogenous outcome. And the p-value was was pretty damn low in terms of comparing the difference. It was a 15% increase, 15.3, and the p-value was less than 0 0.001. Cool. So I think I, I don't have like I I don't have the individual data, but I would guess that the vast majority of individuals did see uh, a pretty substantial increase in, in yeah. calf girth, probably somewhere in the range of. You know, like if we're talking about, uh, we don't actually have a, a standard deviation on the percentage difference. That would be the way to tell. Like if we had a 15.3 plus or minus 5%, then we could say, hey, 95% of people had at least a 5% increase. But we don't have that. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I guess it with the the stretching, it, it's similar to last time we spoke when we talked a lot about long muscle lengths. You were saying like, you probably don't want to go from doing barely any of your training at long muscle lengths to like, all of it now in that like you need yes. to graduate your way there and then some people will talk about kind of long muscle lengths and that some of the issues with people now going towards that it's more injurious or injurious mm. uh, but i think it's very much like i don't know someone says a deadlift oh you shouldn't deadlift that's a bad exercise for you like you're going to injure yourself so well depends how you're executing it in a large way so it's the similar i guess you you'd say the same about long muscle lengths kind of you want to control that range don't bounce into it like you may have seen some crazy individuals doing exactly I think um, 
there should be a graduated process of exposure to a new stress. That's kind of as we've come to understand more and more about the very few things which do seem to predict injury. That's one of them is large magnitude, large volume exposures to novel stresses when you haven't d developed any kind of resilience in those tissues to that. That's asking for uh, basically what I did is asking for injury. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like like if I was to write a protocol for someone preliminarily based off on what I think I know now, it would be, hey, let's, you know, three times a week do a half an hour in, in, in the boot if they wanted to do this specific thing. Yeah. And, you know, take some take some girth measurements over two months, see if anything changed. Not, nothing happened, but range of motion's improving and they're tolerating it okay. Then, we okay, we could kick those up to 45-minute sessions. And I would potentially, you know, like cap the time based upon like how long do they want to sit there and stretch and maybe increase the frequency. Um, I do suspect there probably does need to be a certain duration because um, the experience of doing it. So like when I first sit down, I elevate my foot like on the couch or on like a step stool uh, or on like the coffee table. And at first, my knee is, is like slightly flexed and I'm trying to let it relax down because um, like the gastroc crosses the knee and the ankle. So the more knee extension you can get into, the greater stretch you're going to have on the calf. And it takes me maybe five minutes before my, my leg is straight or as straight as it's going to get. Um, and also it takes a while just for like the, the pressure on the orthotic device to come down a little bit as my body is accepting that range, you know, it's like, it's pushing back on me less. So you think like there's this acute change over the first, what feels like five to 10 minutes before I am in that position. And maybe that's all it takes. 10 minutes, or maybe you then have to live there in that stretch position. I don't know how long you need to. That's the next step, I think, if if we have kind of... So here's the thing. Okay, it's not the next step. The next step, in my opinion, if we really want to have confidence in this, is to see replication not just by me and one person, um, but in replication in a larger group uh, by a different group than Warnicke, right? Um, to see if this is something that other labs can replicate and uh, so we can get an idea of the true magnitude of effect and consistency of the outcomes in a larger population than just Eric Helms, right? So once we have that, once we've got multiple labs finding the same thing, awesome. This is this is a real phenomenon we're observing most likely. Um, now we need to establish the uh, like the dose response curve, right? Do we need to be doing seven hours a week to see a 15% mean increase uh, in, in untrained individuals? So maybe we, we do another study where you just cut that in half. You know, you do three days or, or four days a week, or you just do half an hour per session. I think the duration and the, and the frequency and the dose need to all be manipulated until we get an idea of what's doing it. Is, is it more the duration or is it more the, the, the total area of the curve? And I don't know. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we 
we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change, sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense when you think about like, I don't know, the, the generally quoted 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week for hypertrophy. It's like, well, what's the dose response for stretching? And there's going to be people, maybe someone like Jeff, he could probably strap on for 10 minutes. His calves are like exploding. And maybe someone like ourselves need to do it for more time. Uh, so that's really interesting. And yeah, I'm excited for that research. And then, I don't know, if a lab picks up and decides we're going to do it for, I don't know, the pecs or the hamstrings or something, that'll be very interesting as well. Um, I think it will take a long time, like the calves, I feel like I can accept that I could do that, but doing it for other muscles, I'd be like, man, do I have to do this and not actually like bench or like do some chest flies or may, hopefully it's complimentary, of course, but it'll, it'll feel weird going in that direction. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And I think, um, for anyone who's in academia who's listening to this, it's an easy thing to write a grant for, you know, because like, if you talk about immobilization or if you talk about hell, you can write up, hit up NASA and be like, Hey, like in addition to flywheel training, we can do these stretch, these stretch positions. Cause it's, you know, in a non-gravity environment, you can still stretch a muscle. Right. So I think there's some, there's some interesting applications outside yeah. of bodybuilding that, that we can benefit from as bodybuilders, uh, with our insanity by, by understanding the mechanisms behind this and then the, and the dosing and the, whether or not it's complementary, additive or, or redundant, which is, you know, a real possibility we need to be open to that. It is the same thing as training more or less. Um, so, but yeah, we, we, we shall see. It is, uh, I think when, when you get an area of research like this, it's, it's, uh, that's kind of novel. It's pretty exciting for everybody involved and it makes you remember why you love science and why being a nerd is cool. So, yeah. Well, we've spent almost 40 minutes talking about your calves. So like, I'm excited <laughs> about it. I, I hope the listeners are still excited about it. And it's also where this could take like science as well, which I think is really interesting. Uh, with the like long muscle lengths, last time we spoke about it a little bit. Have you, is there anything recently you've used from this data that you've applied? I know you mentioned kind of lateral delts doing more cable work and things like this. Is there anything else recently that you've kind of thrown into your training to experiment with? Yeah, the main thing, that hasn't changed a ton. Um, the main things I do, so I'll, I'll just list you all the different exercises that I do where I think I'm I'm trying to leverage this. So I do uh, behind the back uh, lateral raises uh, where I basically reach as far behind me as I can. Um, I've also played around with in the front, but I find I bend my elbow too much. Um, so behind the back just seems to work better for, for me. If you've got a really juicy gluteus maximus, that might get in the way. Um, I've also played, or I'm also doing a lot of um, just thinking differently about my back work as far as allowing my range of motion to drop off a little bit because the hardest point is when it's shortened and kind of setting a end range of motion for it that is, or like a minimal accepted range of motion for me to count it as a rep that's a little more forgiving. So for example, as long as I get like a lat pull down bar to my chin, I, I, I allow it. Of course, I'm trying to get it to my clavicle each time um, but I'll do an additional two or three reps that I otherwise might not have done um, and count the RIR from that point of hitting my chin rather than how I used to do it of counting it from touching my clavicle. Um, and I think that, that, that means I just get more time and energy spent in the length and position, the longer part of that range of motion. 
And I do that for, for rows as well, kind of similar philosophy. Um, so I've thought differently about my back work. Um, and I do include, I think, you know, like for example, pullovers uh, have gotten a relatively bad rap because they're associated with like the old school chest expansion stuff. But they do put you in an end range of position for, uh, you know, shoulder extension. And then they're, or shorter, shoulder flexion, I should say. And then you're, you're forcefully trying to extend. And I, I actually really like those and I get pretty damn sore in response to them. At least I did initially kind of in like the upper lat. Um, and I, I think those are a pretty good exercise, uh, despite kind of the, the, the flack they've gotten. People are like, oh, they're a pec exercise, like a little bit they do, you know, but not much. And, um, so I think for some of the biomechanical arguments against them, they kind of missed out on the fact that it does actually train you at pretty long muscle length at the end range of motion. So I include those more regularly when I do flies, I don't come all the way up. So I just basically choose the range of motion as to the point that is maybe the, the bottom half of a typical fly motion. And I use that from where I'm gauging my, my intensity, my proximity to failure. Um, and then I do standing leg extensions. Um, which is essentially you use a cable stack and it's like a leg extension, but you are not in a uh, hip flex position like you would be in a seated leg extension. So it's actually stretching the rec fem, which attaches at the hip. Um, and then I also, when I do uh, leg curls, not always, but maybe about half the time I will bend over at the waist and kind of stabilize myself in my rack. Again, I have a, I have a home gym where I'm training on a cable, which is why I'm not saying... I'm just doing seated leg, leg curls. I would have had access to it. I would every other time do seated leg curls. I wouldn't exclusively do seated leg curls because the sartorius actually is lengthened when you're doing a lying hamstring curl. So I think sometimes we think maybe a little too reductionist about the anatomy involved in some of these movements and just think, oh, a seated leg curl is bar none better than a, a lying leg curl. So some of the things that could be like if you were not a home gym trainer with a cable stack where you need to bend over to simulate a seated leg curl or stand up to simulate a, uh, a regular lying leg curl, uh, you could just switch between seated and lying on your <clears throat> training sessions and you probably get the, the best of both worlds. Uh, and I think that's pretty much it from a perspective of how I'm training at longer muscle lengths. A lot of the lower body training sort of takes care of itself. Um, if you're doing squats, if you're doing uh, deadlifts, if you're doing RDLs, especially, uh, you are basically the, 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 when the lever arm is the farthest from the fulcrum is when the muscle is the most stretched. So that's why those are probably just pretty yep. good exercises for the, just as they are. Yeah. That makes, makes a ton of sense. Very similar to myself as well, in terms of the places I found it best is for like back training, especially because when you get into that short position like it just that is the hardest position in a lot of back movements and that's where you're also weakest and then it's like well you could be stronger stronger in the long muscle lens is producing more kind of hypertrophy so let's kind of milk that out a little bit more so mm. that's really cool that you've implemented that and um yeah it's very interesting you talked about the this kind of seated leg curl because imagine there's probably quite a lot of kind of people that train from home as well and maybe they don't have access to the seated leg curl i actually don't have access to a seated leg curl at my gym either they have a standing and a lying and i'm like why the standing the standing one's okay but uh i i do, the way that you're doing it is it because you're trying to like shift your hips a little bit further back and trying to like like you said emulate the seated position but you probably can't quite get it the same is that right I can get decent. It's, it's, it's certainly not the same as like trying to do a full, like lean over your leg. Like you've probably seen Birdo do, um, with his seated leg curls. But what I do is I create, I have a little step stool that's only make maybe 10 centimeters off the ground. Right. 
and I will put that uh, in front of the cable stack with the cable all the way at the bottom and then I put a cuff around each leg and I'll stand on the edge of the stool with the leg I'm going to do a leg curl off of the edge of it, strap in, and then I will bend over at the waist so that the um, mechanism where the cable attachment comes out of, that upright metal bar with the holes in it, is right here, like against my trap. Yeah. So I am leaned up against it, supporting myself there. So I am bent over at the waist at about, it's close to a 90 degree angle as I can get. And I'm yeah. doing a leg curl from that position. Kind of like the position you try to get into for like a donkey calf raise. And then one of my legs is doing a single leg leg curl. And um, it's not like a massive stretch. Like I have been able to, to, to sensationally feel when I'm doing a seated leg curl, but it is a objectively more stretch position than doing yeah. uh, a lying leg curl or standing leg curl. Yeah. Yeah. I have to, I try and like I push my hips back and I put a foam block on the like seated leg curl, mm. uh, sorry, the standing leg curl thing to try and like get in my more stretch position, but I might try it because they have cables. So I might try what you're doing and cuff it and see how that goes. Like I was in lockdown and actually that worked like that actually felt very good and similar to the seated leg curl, but yeah, seated leg curls are pretty lovely. And actually you were incorporating, cause I know it was years ago, I think where I saw you do an Instagram post where you were leaning over and you're yep. already kind of playing into this long muscle lens to a certain extent with the, the seated leg curls. So uh, yeah, it's, it's cool to see that like even back then, like there was talk about it, but it's much more come to the forefront now, which is exciting. Yeah, I want to say that was like 2017 when I first started to become aware of this data in its preliminary, its more preliminary stages. And yeah, that was when I was first playing with it. I just didn't really, I think I had a very one-dimensional view of it. Like, oh, there's this study that shows, you know, uh, lengthened position for the leg on a leg extension and a leg curl is better. So I'll do that instead of, and what does that mean? How does it yeah, apply to other yeah. muscles, you know? So uh, I think it's good that the awareness has increased over time. And I think it's nice, like you said, with, because I know for a time people were kind of bashing almost like dumbbell flies because, oh, mm. you don't load them in like the shortened position because gravity is just forcing you down, what have you. And it's like, well, actually, now there's some application. And similar to you said there, kind of with the pullover, where again, people poo pooed that for the longest time. It's like, well, actually, it's pretty like it's getting you stretched. I mean, it's hard for me, uh, and I imagine lots of the listeners, like to get soreness through the lats. Like that's one of the muscles mm -hmm. that it's just hard to get them at that long muscle length. So, it's nice that like it's a good reminder, like the seated and lying leg curl, like the sartorius is a thing, variation's good. It's kind of like, don't throw away these tools. And that's yes. something I, I, I guess we talked about off air a little bit in terms of this search for optimal uh, within programming and exercise selection in particular recently has been a thing. And I'd love to get just your perspective on kind of what your thoughts are surrounding optimal uh, maybe when you're talking to clients or kind of when you're trying to educate people and they're seeking for like all these optimal parameters, whether it's training, nutrition, lifestyle, and where do you meet them? Uh, and how do you kind of help people get to grips with that? Because I think it causes quite a lot of people of confusion, but also potentially anxiety as well. They're, they're constantly trying to find the, the best thing. Absolutely. And I think this manifests itself in the fact that we will seek precision and specific quantitative answers when we don't yet have the information to support it, you know, um, like, and I don't mean this as shade on, uh, like Renaissance periodization, um, because I think as an example, I've seen people post like, Hey, the MAV for chest is 14 sets or something like that. And when you look at the actual, like, uh, the way they present that it's like, Hey, you know, we're anecdotally thinking and, you know, like it's this, this is what we think might be appropriate. And there's some, some, some stuff baked into that. But 
honestly, it's just kind of a number that's reasonably pulled out of the air, you know, it's, um, and, and to their credit, it's not presented as we have a high degree of confidence and that this is an average value that's, that that's good for this muscle group, but people latch onto it immediately. You know, mm-hmm. it's something that it satisfies kind of that exactly what you were talking about, that desire to have specific answers, to optimize things, to have quantitative things, uh, quantitative specific goals to target. Um, I've seen recently like, oh, the optimal rep range is five. It's like five to eight reps, you know, uh, I've seen them. Right. So when I see either one of those things, it immediately sets sets off uh, epistemological alarm bells for me as a researcher, because I know what we can and can't research. And I know the precision to which we can uh, basically test things. Right. So I am aware immediately that that's not something we can know. So the recommendation makes you go, okay, where did that come from? And you start to learn it's an extrapolation from things. And it's kind of this game of telephone that comes around, uh, like going back to the kind of the MAV thing, you know, it's a collection of anecdotes. It's a, it's a best guess. It's, you know, close to what we think is true for like most muscle groups. But then we think about these aspects of it and, you know, because people want the specific answer, I'll give them one. And then what it gets ran with is, oh, man, we've got, you know, position of authority, doctor, science, woo, woo, optimal here, 14 is the best, and, and that's what you should be doing. Um, and I don't think that is, the, the fault is, is not on any one person, but more of this drive to find the most specific and most optimal answer. I think one uh, example that, that probably everyone can understand uh, and, and see where I'm getting at is when people are trying to hit macros to the gram right? And their default thinking is, well, if I can be more precise, that can only be better, right? And I know that, say, the food labels on average are off by 10 to 20%. Uh, I also know that they they don't know what their energy expenditure is. And even if they were to measure their energy expenditure with, let's say, you know, a Fitbit or something like that, that that is also off by 10 to 20%. So even if on their spreadsheet and by their food scale and everything, and they, they had hit 250 grams of carbs every single day. The reality is they're probably operating in a range of say 220 to 280 on any given day. And that's just the way it is. And it doesn't matter that they hit it every single day because there's this normal variation. And there's days when their energy expenditure is lower and they hit 280 and their energy expenditure is higher and they hit 220. So the quest to and the energy put into being that precise in search of optimal is wasted uh, and it doesn't come at a at no cost there's unintended consequences of that as well so for example let's say you're hitting all three macros down to i'll be even more nice to, to, to within a five grand limit something that maybe a little more more practical something i've even recommended in the past uh, for years uh, and you have your last meal of the night and you look and you go, oh, I got 20 grams of fat left and uh, about 20 grams of carbs and then some, pro- some protein. I guess I have to have like nuts and a protein shake, right? So it makes you construct this weird meal, um, something that is maybe less satisfying, uh, that kind of has some head scratching. You're spending 20 minutes going through your, your cupboards or whatever. Um, in reality, though, if you said, hey, actually what I have is about 400 calories left in a protein serving. Now, all of a sudden, you can go, what would I like to eat that's 400 calories with, with protein that might make me feel more satiated, uh, that might, you know, 
curb my stomach rumblings that I might have a better night of sleep with. You can make an objectively better decision for you as a bodybuilder by being less precise and less limited by having these specific targets uh, that you must reach that are based upon the assumption that being more precise is more optimal. But in reality, it provides these limitations on you. And it actually doesn't. I mean, there's, there's no construction I can think of my head of where it would be a big difference if you had in your last meal of the day, considering this variation that already exists, 20 grams of carbs more or less or 10 grams of fat more or less uh, with anywhere between either 30 or 40 grams of protein. Even consistently adding that up over time, it just won't make a difference. All of that is within the realm of effectively producing the same outcome so long as the average deficit is the same, which it will be. Um, and that you're still consuming a reasonable amount of carbs and fat and protein on average. But you have the opportunity there to leverage some flexibility and have a meal that might improve your adherence or improve your satiety or improve your sleep. And because you're going for this quote-unquote optimal, you're missing that opportunity. So conceptually, that is a conversation that I try to have with my clients um, or I rec or our coaches have with their clients, or I try to communicate when I'm on podcasts or whatnot, so that people can first just get over the incorrect logical assumptions around, around optimality. I think a lot of it is basically the more precise I can be, the more I'm eliminating noise and I'm having, you know, more signal, but it's assuming that there is not unavoidable built-in noise in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it is assuming that this level of precision actually makes a difference when in many cases it doesn't. And that means that our mentality instead should be, when can precision serve me and for what purposes? And that's the place I should focus my efforts. But if I spread thin my willpower towards trying to have this high degree of precision on everything, I'm missing a lot and only hitting sometimes, and I don't have much energy for the times when it would matter because I'm spread so thin. So that's kind of the uh, the, the conception that I try to get across to people. Um, their emotional status around it and their fears they have, that typically is not alleviated until I can meet them halfway. We can try being a little, quote unquote, less optimal, which is not less optimal. It's actually better. Um, yeah. But we ease off on certain things and they notice that things either stay the same or perhaps even improve. And I think that experiential knowledge is, is what it takes to alleviate the fear. Yeah, I I can concur with that because I've definitely been in that position where I was trying to like hit macros to a certain gram or something. Or even there was a point where I was like, oh, I can actually eat some foods that are, I don't know, not quote unquote like bro or whatever or clean mm. rather and i can include some of these and slowly you have a little bit and you're like oh i haven't put on tons of fat today because i ate like i don't know white rice instead of brown rice and it's like oh then you slowly experiment further and so i think what you said there in terms of like this is how you line it to people but you you don't expect an overnight thing where someone's like oh now i'm just stress-free and i can yeah be a bit looser but actually that's better for my goals like it takes a bit of time and that experience and this is a quote me and pascal always talk about um this quote that jeff said i think it's essentially experience cures anxiety where mm. obviously jeff's jeff's got heaps of experience but he he is very he has so much wisdom and through his experiences he's like like a very calm individual and like a few things stress him out training nutrition wise i imagine and that is as i've evolved as a trainee and kind of learned more it's like yeah actually there's so much room for freedom and margin of error where you're still quote unquote like closer just as close to optimal as where you are if you're hitting the numbers precisely really um or even in some cases you're, you're better off where you are now because it's less stress and i mean everyone knows stress isn't ideal so i think that's very well explained 
Thanks, Steve. I appreciate that. And I think um, another really important thing for people to understand if they're in kind of the evidence-based sector of fitness is that science is actually not equipped to tell you what's optimal. And I think that is the that that might be hard for people to to understand without explaining it. So I will. But <laughs> the the baseline assumption is that I'm going the science-based route because I want to optimize, because I want to have the right answer, and because I want to do things optimally. And only through science can we optimize things. And if we think about a basic study design, right? If we compare group A doing one program to group B doing another program for resistance training, and group A is better than B, for all we know, and this is a credit to Mike Zerdos, one of my mentors who kind of put this in perspective quite clearly, group A might be the second worst program on the planet, and group B might be the worst program on the planet. We don't know. They weren't compared to anything else. So the march of time is how we get closer and closer to what's optimal. But if you try to seek optimal answers on something now that extends beyond what the data can tell us, you invariably end up guessing. Um, and I think that is something, and you'll basically keep looking for answers, keep looking for answers and tell someone sciencey enough who is also very confident, convinces you that something could be optimized more. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there who sound sciencey, who who've maybe never actually, you know, been able to get through a statistics section or a method section and understand fully what's going on, but are, you know, sciencey enough that for the average bodybuilder who's science interested is convincing. Um, and you can find those answers because that's our natural personality. And I don't even think those people are necessarily charlatans. I think they believe what they're saying in many cases, yeah. but they're just wrong. Or they might be right, but they are they are absolutely guessing because the data is not there to support it. Um, and I'm not someone who strictly just adheres to the data either. You know, I'm, I'm a coach, I'm a, I'm a lifter, I'm a practitioner, and I am very happy to incorporate anecdotal evidence. But if we understand the limitations of science and the limitations of anecdotal evidence, it gets us a little further. Um, but it doesn't give us the answer to what is best compared to everything else because we can't compare one thing to everything else. Uh, all we know is whether something is sufficient to produce the outcome that we want uh, or if it's better than the other approaches it's compared against. So ultimately, science is not that tool. And when people po constantly position science as a way of determining what's optimal, I, to me, I think that should set off an alarm bell. Um, to some degree, it's just kind of baked into our vernacular. And if you hear someone use the word optimal, like that just means they're in our community. But <laughs> it... it but if someone is, is regularly doing that and is, is like marketing their stuff as optimal and then has a very, very sciencey explanation, I think that should set off alarm bells from people. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I know, I think the, the thing you were talking about with Mike Zodos was like, I think it, in the context I remember, he was saying like, this is the best DUP that we found today, or this is the least worst or something. That's how he said yes. it. It was like, people might look at this and... I don't know, optimists or like those people that are looking for optimal, they're looking be like, oh, this is the best DUP protocol there is. And he was like, well, it could be <laughs> like the least worst that we found to date. And uh, I think that's very well explained and yeah, it sets people's expectations up a little bit more correctly. And science is like, it's not giving the answers. It's just finding the truth slowly. Like it's giving us directions. Um, Brad's always like fast to say this, where it's like, well, science just gives you like a starting point to go from and then you find your own path via kind of that's the true individualization 
individualization comes in. And I know people give him stick all the time because it's like, oh, 10 to 20 sets or something like this, like a range that wide. You, do you even do science? Like what science even doing? It's like, that's not an answer. It's like, well, if we gave you specific, like you said, the 14 sets for like chest MAV, that might satisfy a craving in your mind, but it might be too much or too little. And it's like, you know, some people are not going to be optimal doing that for that's for sure. So you have to kind of find, find your best via like, again, I guess start with the science and then, kind of discover for yourself that experience component. And sometimes you need a coach in your corner, like the 3DMJ guys to help you out. <laughs> or the Revive Stronger guys. True. <laughs> I set you up to plug us there. <laughs> <laughs> Mutual so, Appreciation Society. Um, so I think I could talk to you all evening, Eric, but uh, the final thing I just wanted to touch on before I let you go, for your contest prep this season, um, what are your kind of, I guess, main kind of goals, objectives, um, yeah, I'm interested to hear how, what kind of you're thinking about. Look better than last time is my, is my main objective. Um, the timeline, like I said, I'm actually starting just a couple of weeks later than I initially planned, um, because I want to get through the, uh, the one week of not stretching final, like 13th week of this program. So I'm basically starting my diet the first week, uh, near the end of the first week of February. Um, so I'll have you know, February, March, April, May, June, July, and then the earliest show I would possibly do just based upon my timeline of how long it takes me to get in pristine shape and starting heavier this time, I'll be starting at like 95 versus 90. So that's like an, an additional month. So it's probably late August or uh, early September. And it's been really good to see the, like the COVID full recovery that seems to be happening in terms of contests around the world and the expansion in the WNBF. Um, there is the WNBF New Zealand show, which I judged at last year, which I will now not judge at, and they won't let me judge and compete. Um, <laughs> I told them, look, listen, just, I'll watch a video of my class afterwards. <laughs> yeah. I'll be happily able to unbiasedly rate it. Um, but no, they, they weren't feeling that. So I can't judge and compete in that one. I'll just compete. Um, WNBF Australia, I think is only a couple weeks after that. So I'm planning on doing that. And then, um, it, I think Jeff and I are planning to compete in some shows on the West Coast uh, in October, and then I'm planning on making it to World. So last time I competed in 2019, I did my first show in April and started tapping out in August. So I'm kind of just shifting the whole thing back because that's the only way I'm going to make it to Worlds. So my first goal is uh, have a good prep and improve. Um, and I have pretty broad parameters for improvement uh, that it could be understanding myself better, you know, being able to uh, have a better recovery after the fact, not being as beat to shit as I get shredded, um, just being a pretty good husband and supervisor and and director of 3DMJ and contributor to mass as I'm doing it um, without taking big hits on mental and cognitive performance or, or emotional stability. Um, that would count as a win. Uh, second kind of rank tiered goal is, you know, a improve uh, subjectively um, and feel like I, I beat myself from 2019. And I think at least my calves will do that. Um, we'll see about the rest. And then uh, third goal would be to objectively win. Um, and this is kind of the the, the, the cherry on top. I, I would love to get my WBF pro card if that's in the, the proverbial cards for me, no pun intended. So uh, we shall see. I'm trying to target shows where there are sufficient number of competitors that are pro qualifiers. Um, and just to give myself as many opportunities as possible. And um, it would be pretty cool to actually get to compete at Worlds as a pro and really get stomped on 
uh, and get good pictures while doing so. So uh, yeah, that's that that would be nice. But of course, it would still be a great honor to even compete in an amateur at Worlds and have another shot towards the end of the year. Awesome. Yeah, I, I love your kind of saving placings for the, like the last, that's like the cherry on top, everything else, like you, giving yourself, like setting you up for success really in terms of improvements along various parameters, which I, uh, I really appreciate. And um, yeah, I think what was Alberto said something along the lines of like, when you're in a pro lineup, they're now looking for weaknesses a lot of the time because people are so well put together. Um, and as soon as he put it that way, I was like, oh man, I never want to, I don't know if I want to be in a pro lineup. I have too many weaknesses oh, yeah. to, to show. <laughs> yeah, they'll find them on me. I tell you what, so yeah. <laughs> Um, do you have, is there a certain number of shows? Actually, this is just a very quick question. I don't know if you have an answer to it, but I was just talking to a client and he was like very excited about his season. I think he outlined like nine shows that he wanted to do. And I was like, oh God, nine shows. Uh, do you have like an idea of like, what's your maximum, like a maximum number of shows or like an, just to anecdotally from the number of people you've coached, like how many shows people can handle? Honestly, it's logistics based. Um, cause you can get someone in a position, in my opinion, where you've walked up their calories to more or less maintenance and they're running around kind of peaked all the time. Yeah. And if they have a lot of shows that are in their area that don't require travel and they have the mental and social outlook of, I'm not going to have like big celebrations each weekend when I compete, they could do shows every weekend once they're in shape. Like on paper, I don't see any reason why not. You just basically, if they still have refeeds or maybe they spill over a little bit, you just have those the Friday before each show, the, the front load or, or the whatever type of progressive incremental load, you, a la, you know, Dr. Joe, you want to use is already done. So it's just kind of like you just top off the gas tank every Friday before they, yeah. they compete and make sure they don't do any damage on, <laughs> on, on Saturday and Sunday and ready to rock again. So um, I think really just comes down to the experience of the competitor. Definitely not something I would have first, second, maybe even third time competitors do, because I think that can be quite stressful. Um, and obviously there's a financial cost associated with trying to travel every weekend to go compete if you have to stay in hotels and all that. But um, I don't think there's like a physiological limit to how many you could do um, using what I think are ideal peaking protocols, because there's not dehydration involved there's not uh, a lot of the things that uh, are associated with with traditional or sometimes yeah. enhanced uh, approaches so i think it's a little easier for us natties if we're in an area where there's a lot of shows yeah that makes a ton of sense it's kind of Assuming where I, you're in shape yeah yeah that that's kind of where i came to it where i was like the thing that i think would be the limiter is that the stress of having to do the tan like travel to the show kind of tr stay overnight in a hotel and like doing that multiple times it kind of, i guess yes. it depends on the person how they're kind of dealing with all of that so yeah certainly that's the goal is to kind of be in shape and then yeah you could pick off like you said loads of shows i know i was ended up doing six shows in 2021 that's the most i've done and i was like actually that was i probably could have dropped in a couple more because i think mm. it's like you mentioned your preps are long but there's big strides of time where you can be in shape close to maintenance calories it's like actually it's i mean it's you feel way better once you're recovered but in oh, that yeah. time it's it's survivable for sure like it's sustainable for a period of time it's not like like you wouldn't live like that and you aren't going to look the best like that but certainly for that period of time it's surprising how long you can be in shape i think you put it like 
being kind of stage ready and then being like I, f- I forget what the term you use but it's like legitimate like stage ready yeah you can be stage ready and then live in like this getting closer to legit stage ready and then hold that for multiple months so yes. uh, it's a really cool thing i think you guys and dr joe were the first people that really like opened people's eyes to kind of the fact that you can do that uh and i think it's yeah helping people in a big way so I guess I'll leave that there in terms of the podcast. Like I said, I could talk to you kind of for the whole evening, Eric. And I want to say a massive thank you again for you taking the time to come on and uh, yeah, talk about your calves and the experiment you're doing there. I'm sure people are just as excited as me and I'm very excited about your contest prep. Uh, Are you going to be documenting that at all if people want to follow along? That is the plan. I will uh, be more active than my inactive self that just posts squares of podcasts I've done. Uh, on Instagram and uh, might even put some stuff on YouTube. That's not a promise, but that's a a, 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 a mediocre possibility. <laughs> <laughs> Can you get uh, James Walsham? Is he around? Do you get him to videographer, like even just on his phone, like film you? Hey, I mean, he, he's he's got the skills. He's around. Um, but no, I think like, I, I do plan to legitimately be um, documenting it more and, and trying to take a more, uh, I guess, f- a, a, not, I, I I don't know. I, we'll, we'll see. I, I'm going to be more active than I have been on social yeah. media while I'm dieting. That That's that's the best promise I can yeah. give you. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to so, yeah. set yourself up for not failure on that regard, but promise too much because, yeah. yeah I, mean, I don't want to over-promise, under-deliver. Yeah, you got, you got a lot on your plate. So, yeah, no, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, again, I'll make sure, like, the 3DMJ website, everything's linked. We've got your Instagram Thanks, up there. Is there anything else you want to let the listeners know that's kind of uh, happening on your end? Anything you've got to share? Well, we are working on the third edition of the Muscle and Strength Pyramids. So uh-huh. uh, that will come out sometime in the future, but we are beginning work on it now. So that's I think that'll be exciting. Cool. Yeah, I guess some of this long muscle length stuff, that's going to be in there, I imagine. Maybe the calves. Uh, that'd be exciting to see. And uh, maybe I'll have to bring you back on to talk about some of the updates. Absolutely, man. Once we're uh, actually close to the fog of war being lifted and we know an actual date once we maybe written the first draft and we're working on peer review. And then I think uh, we, we could absolutely discuss more around the concrete details of what's changed. Amazing guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again, Eric. And we'll speak to you soon. Take care. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.